106, and it is uh, such a blessing to be able to be with you. Thank you uh, very much, uh, Pastor Dan and Church, for the opportunity uh, to be with you today and for uh, your kindness and encouragement to us. Thankful for my children singing. Um, I try not to make them sing. I give them a good option, and they, they wanted to sing, uh, so <laughs> probably haven't always wanted to do everything I've asked them to do, but I'm glad they wanted to sing. Uh, and if you would pray uh, for us, as we, I didn't mention much about what the Lord is, um, the ministry the Lord has led us to now, but um, I guess uh, a year from this past October, uh, our mission organization, Vision Baptist Missions, which was started out of our sending church, uh, went through uh, a leadership change, and um, as part of that, there was a a kind of a vacancy, and I was asked to serve as the general director for Vision Baptist Missions. We're a fairly new and small mission organization. Most of our missionaries were um, sent out of our church. Initially, we now have missionaries at other churches, but um, my daddy said, don't you have to be like 60 years old to be like a general director? I was like, yeah, I think I probably should be, but every, pretty much everybody with our organization is younger than me, so we'll, we'll grow together. But um, I was asked to pray about that, and that was a really, probably a harder decision for us to to come back from the mission field than to go, um, because pretty much that was pretty much the only life we knew as adults. <laughs> Me and my wife, kids were all born over there. Uh, but we we could see how God's hand was in all the things we'd experienced as missionaries, um, opportunities to help other missionaries stay encouraged and. Uh, figure out how to do ministry in their respective mission fields. And so we moved back last October to take up that role. And we are excited about the opportunities we have to really help young people who want to be missionaries um, evaluate, are they, um, should they go into missions? And then um, if they and their church believe they are, help them, um, you know, begin deputation, uh, get to the field, uh, get through a couple years of initial language and culture, get a church started, come back from furlough, and just kind of walk alongside them and their church uh, to hopefully that they can be effective on the, on the mission field and that they can be fruitful uh, and that they can uh, continue serving as God leads them. And so, it, as the pastor mentioned, it's a more of a support role. Um, I was able to visit West Africa. I just came back from uh, Nigeria and Burkina Faso last week. And uh, we have three missionary families out there and just try to encourage them. And so we're excited about this opportunity uh, to help uh, missionaries and to help their churches. And so if you would pray for us. We do have some prayer cards on the back table, um, as well as a little brochure about Vision Baptist Missions. If you're interested, you can pick one of those up. Psalm 106, our passage today. And today's a Father's Day, so we're thinking about um, our fathers probably um, and thinking about that. And one of the things we get from our fathers is our name. Um, and sometimes that's a name that we're proud of, and sometimes maybe uh, not so much. But all dads think their kids are super proud to be their kids. Um, you know, but when we think about, when we think about our name, uh, we all enjoy hearing our name. We all enjoy somebody knows our name. Uh, we've probably all had the experience of uh, forgetting someone's name, or if you ever ask somebody's name, and then you ask them again and again, you still can't remember it, and so you just do what Christians do, you just call them brother, you know, whether they're a brother or not, you're like, oh, brother, you're, you know, <laughs> uh, you know, but our name is important to us, 
Um, but if we're honest, probably our name uh, really isn't worthy as much respect as we want it to be. If, if people knew who we were, people knew everything we had done, if, our, our, if an honest account of our life was to be told, uh, sometimes like we see the characters in the Bible, uh, the good and the bad, we would recognize that probably our name isn't really that something that's that that important to be to be talking about to be praising. I remember when we arrived in Northern Ireland, um, and people were asking me, you know, where are you from? What are you doing? And I would tell them who I was. I would tell them uh, the church I was from, or maybe uh, the college that I went to. And everybody just looked at me like, why are you here? And it dawned on me, no one really cared who I was, what church I was sent from, what college I went to. Uh, it really meant zero to them. Uh, and that was kind of a humbling experience. But in the Bible, we find that there is a name that is worthy of praise and honor. And that's what this psalm is about. If you look in verse number one, the Bible says, Praise ye the Lord. O give thanks unto the Lord, for he is good, his mercy endureth forever. Who can utter the mighty acts of the Lord? Who can show forth all his praise? And if you look at the last verse of the psalm, It says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel from everlasting to everlasting, and let all the people say, Amen, praise ye the Lord. And that is the focus of the psalm, and that really should be the focus of our lives, that we would praise the Lord. We would live for His name, and that we would live to give Him honor and glory. But what's interesting about this psalm is even though it begins with praising God and ends with praising God, it really goes on a journey that catalogs pretty much every major failure that Israel has. Uh, and it's, it's, uh, it's kind of interesting uh, because it is going to show essentially that if God would save this group of people and do it for His honor, for His glory, then surely God would also save us and work in our lives today. So let me just go through a few of the things we notice in the psalm. If you notice in verse number 7, uh, it says here in verse number 7, Our fathers understood not thy wonders in Egypt. They remembered not the multitude of thy mercy. They provoked him at the Red Sea, even at the Red Sea. So what's going to happen is he's going to, he's, he's asking God to intervene, and he is going to say that if you did all of this for these type of people, then surely you would do something for me. So notice some of the, the we could say the highlights, but really the lowlights of this nation. They, they first of all didn't understand the wonders of God in verse 7. Uh, they didn't remember the multitude of His mercies, and they provoked God at the Red Sea. If you go down to verse number 13, they forgot the works of God. They forgot how He had delivered them. Uh, They didn't wait for God's counsel. Verse 14, time and time again, they doubted God in times of hardship in need. They envied their leaders. In verse 16, verse 19, they 
they made a calf out of gold and worshipped it. And verse 20, they changed the glory of God into something like an ox that eats grass. Let's read verse 20. It says, thus they changed their glory into the similitude of an ox that eateth grass. And it's almost like God is saying, can you believe that they would believe that an ox that eats grass would be their God? They would worship something that inferior. Verse 21, they forgot God their Savior and all the great things He did in Egypt. Verse 23, they came very close to being completely wiped out by the wrath of God. God was so um, frustrated with them, He nearly wiped them out as a nation. Verse 24, they despised the pleasant land. God had this beautiful land for them, and they, they turned up their noses at that. They despised it. They didn't believe God's word. They murmured in their tents. They, verse 28, participated in idolatrous and immoral worship. They ate the sacrifices of the dead. They made God angry with their inventions in verse 29. They made Him more angry at the waters of strife in verse 32. They didn't destroy the nations in verse 34. They intermarried with the wicked Canaanites and learned their works in verse 35. They served their idols, verse 36. They sacrificed their sons and daughters unto, unto devils or demons, verse 37. In verse 38, they shed innocent blood. If you look down to verses 39 to 40, the summary is, Thus were they defiled with their own works, and went a-whoring with their own inventions. Therefore the wrath of the Lord, therefore was the wrath of the Lord kindled against His people, insomuch that He abhorred His own inheritance. This is not a very impressive list. I'm pretty sure the nation of Israel is thinking, please stop reading. Please stop telling this story. This is humiliating to the point that God is looking at the nation He's created and He hates them. He abhors them. And that's why it's a very surprising thing when the Bible says back in verse number 8, Nevertheless, He, God, saved them. Who's the them here? It's the people we've just read about. The people that had every opportunity and every blessing and they rejected it, they ran from it, and they went after other gods and they, they um, just totally turned their back on God. And yet the Bible says, He saved them. So we see, first of all, in the passage, who God saves. Who does God save? He saved them. Who were they? They were rebellious people. They were ungrateful people. They were flat out irritating people to God. They were foolish. They were impatient. They were doubtful. They were prideful and idolatrous and, and blind and immoral and really I think if we could even say they were dirty and, and their lifestyle was disgusting to God. And yet He saved them. The Bible is very clear. We could look at the nation of Israel, we could think, how could they turn their back on God so much? And yet the Bible is very clear that there's none righteous, no, not one. 
And we know that if the story of our lives were told, it's not a whole lot different, is it? God allows us to be born and to be blessed and to be given so much. God is gracious and forgiving and merciful. And time and time and time again, we do our own thing. We go our own way. We try our own path. We, we don't pray. We don't seek Him. We, 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 figure, we try to figure it out on our own. And we could not judge the nation of Israel because we too have gone our own way. But God in His grace commends His love toward them and toward us. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And so we as well um, have sinned greatly against God. So why is the psalmist telling all of this this sad list of, of sin against God? Well, if you go to verse number 3, he begins by praising verses 1 and 2. Verse 3, he says, Blessed are they that keep judgment. And he that doeth righteousness at all times. So he acknowledges kind of like this, this universal truth that the person that keeps judgment and the person that does righteousness at all times will be blessed. This is like the ideal. This is really God. This is Jesus. That's, that'd be great if you could always be righteous. You'd be greatly blessed. But then he says in verse 4, Remember me, O Lord, with the favor that thou bearest unto thy people, O visit me with thy salvation, that I may see the goodness of thy chosen, that I may rejoice in the gladness of thy nation, that I may glory with thine inheritance. We have sinned with our fathers, we have committed iniquity, we have done wickedness. Our fathers understood not thy mercy in Egypt, they remembered not the multitude of thy mercies, but provoked him at the sea, even the Red Sea. Nevertheless, he saved them. So do you see his logic? He's thinking, I know what the nation of Israel was like, and yet you chose them. I know how often they failed against you, and yet you saved them. And God, I know that if I was always righteous, that would be a great blessing, but I'm not. And I am appealing to your grace and to your mercy, and I'm saying, God... I identify myself with those who have rebelled against you multiple times. And I'm asking that just as you save them, will you save me? Isn't that wonderful how God is so gracious? Who does God save? God saves sinners. And the beautiful message of the gospel as a missionary, as a Christian, and maybe you're here and you're not a believer in Jesus Christ is... You don't have to change your life to get saved. You don't have to clean up your act to get saved. You just call out. You can't clean it up. You can't change it. You can try. You can put on a new coat of paint. But underneath, you know that it's rotten to the core. God knows all about that. And God delights in saving sinners. And that is such a wonderful thing for us. And God continues to save even those of us who have been saved and redeemed. We still need His grace every day because there are are aspects of our our life and our character that need His, His continual grace. And God is in the work of saving sinners. What a wonderful thing it is. We had a a lady that we met uh, many years ago. It was a Sunday afternoon. We were about to have our, our Sunday evening service and we were... I was kind of just out on the streets giving out some invitations. 
this lady took an invitation. She came into the church, and um, uh, she sat there. She listened to the gospel message, kind of began to get to know her a little bit. She had a whole lot of problems. Uh, she was really in bondage to false religion. She thought that her church could save her, her, uh, her this system of tradition could save her. She had a serious uh, problem with uh, alcohol. Uh, she was uh, frequently suicidal and uh, just really in bondage to a lot of different things. And after coming to church a few weeks, um, we, uh, Terry did some Bible studies with her, and she asked the Lord to save her. And we were so thankful for that, but she still had a lot of pressure from family and you know, and sometimes people make professions. You don't know whether, you know, it represents real, genuine faith in their life. We eventually moved, as I mentioned, we moved from Ireland to England. And we kind of lost contact with some of the people there. This lady was one of them. But then we came back a number of years later, and she reached out to my wife and said she wanted to meet up with us. And it was, when we met up, we did not recognize her. She was so full of joy she was so full of, of um, mission uh, and inviting people and involved and serving. It was, it was like totally changed person. And what a beautiful thing it was for God to save someone like this lady. Who does God save? God saves sinners. And one of the, one of the, the most dangerous places to be in life is to think you're okay. To think you're fine. Um, Jesus said he didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. What does that mean? He didn't come to save certain people are righteous. No, he, he didn't come to save some who thought they were righteous. And that's a very scary place to be. So who does God save? God saves sinners. And if God saved the Israelites, he was going to save the psalmist who wrote this psalm. And if God saved them, God will save and work in our lives. And so if you're here today and you recognize you're a sinner, God can and will save you if you will humble yourself and believe on Him. But then we see, secondly, in the passage, how does God save? How does God save? And there's a lot that could be said about this, but one of the things that kind of, um, if you read the psalm, one of the things that kind of um, is interesting is there's a couple pivotal moments in the psalm where you know, God has really kind of had it up to here in a sense. And, uh, you know, it's, it's these people have, are pushing and pushing and rebelling and hardening their heart. And, and, and even though God wants to save, God never forces anyone to get saved. Um, and so it's like, you know, the point of judgment almost nearly comes, but then there's um, a transition. So one of those is found in verse number 23. So verse 23 says, therefore he said, this is God, God said that he would destroy them. You know, they have, they have you know, pushed and pushed and pushed, and now he's going to destroy them. Had not, notice verse 23, had not Moses, his chosen, stood before him in the breach to turn away his wrath, lest he should destroy them. So what happens here is right when God is about to destroy them, his chosen one, Moses, stands before him in the breach 
to turn away his wrath, lest he should destroy them. Does that remind you of anyone in the Bible? Moses is a a type of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it even calls Moses his chosen. Jesus Christ, Jesus, the, the uh, Christ there means Messiah. It means the chosen one or the anointed one. And that's exactly what the Lord Jesus Christ did for us. When the wrath of God justly should have been poured out upon us, Jesus, God's chosen Messiah, stood before us in the, in the breach to turn away the wrath of God and lest we should be destroyed. And so how does God save? God saves through His chosen. God saves through the Lord Jesus Christ. The nation of Israel didn't deserve salvation. The, the lady I mentioned earlier, she didn't deserve salvation. We don't deserve salvation. But the reason God saves is because God has sent a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who died on the cross and shed His blood for our sin. And so God saves through His chosen. God saves through His anointed one, And Moses here is a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ and what Christ did for us on the cross. Down in verse number 30, we see another uh, pivotal moment. It says, uh, if you look at verse actually 29, it says, Thus they provoked him to anger with their inventions, and now a plague is breaking in upon them. And they they have basically, they've joined up with this idolatrous and moral worship they're, they're eating the sacrifices of the dead. They're provoking God to anger. And a plague begins to break out. But verse 30 says, Then stood up Phineas and executed judgment, and the plague was stayed. And once again, in the, in, right as, the, that as judgment is falling, there is one who stands up and executes judgment, and the plague is stayed. And again, I think we see here from Phineas that he is a picture of Christ the Messiah. And so how does God save How does God save sinners? God saves sinners the same way He's always been saving sinners, and that is through His his chosen deliverer. And there are many different pictures in the Old Testament. You have the ark, you have the, the Passover lamb, but it all points to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how sinners get saved. Not through coming to church, not through getting baptized, not through uh, saying a certain uh, creed or something like that, but through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the Savior. He is the one through whom people get saved. That's how you get saved. And that's how we, we get saved every single day as we need His help with getting victory over sin. It's all about Jesus Christ. And so we can't save ourselves, but Jesus is the one that does the saving Jesus is at, the, is at the center of all of it. God saves in the exact same way. Verse 21 is a good summary of how God saves. Verse 21 says, they forgot God, their Savior. Who we need and who you need is you need God. You need the Lord Jesus Christ, God's chosen Messiah, God's chosen Savior. That's who I need and that's who you need. That's how God saves. Then I want you to see the third thing in the passage, and that is why does God save? Why does God save? Why would God do this? I mean, if you, if you read the list, you think, I mean, everything God did for them, they just spat on it. Everything that God tried to do, they weren't even a nation, and God called them out of idolatry. And he sets up Abraham, and he he promises Abraham all this land. 
He protects them even though all their enemies come against them. He reveals Himself to them on Mount Sinai. He gives them a written code. Um, He just does tons of things for them. And they just sort of, they just turn their back on it. You know, they... They repeatedly ignore God and reject God. I think that, you know, in the rudest possible way, they reject God. And yet God intervenes time and time again. Why? Why would God do that? Why would God do that for us? Why would God save us? Why would God intervene for us? Look at verse 8. Nevertheless, the Bible says... He saved them, notice this next phrase, for His name's sake. For His name's sake. Why does God save? God saves for His name's sake. He saves so that, as the verse says, He might make His mighty power to be known. It's kind of like today's Father's Day. You know, of course, every father, at least till their kids get to be about 14, 15, their kids think they can do anything in the world, you know. And then daughters, they kind of like pretend like they still believe that's true. But eventually sons are like, Dad, you're an imposter, you know. You are weak, you have a bad back, and you cannot do anything and everything that you say you do, you know. And my son Grant, he always tries to keep, keep me real, keep me humble, you know. Uh, you know, um, but dads, we, 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 enjoy the, we enjoy at times when, our, when our, our kids have a problem, you know. They'll be like, we can't get the pickles open. And you're like, you can't. Do you need help with that? Because I was just over here needing to use these guns, you know, to do something, you know. And you're like, you know, you're like. I got it, I got it, you know, and then you finally get it, and you're like, I'm glad I got it, you know, because uh, the mask was going to be off. But, but we enjoy the fact that there's a need for us to use whatever abilities that we have for, for others. We also think we had some grilled chicken last night, um, and, you know, the funny thing is, like, some families you do you do uh, like a, you grill out or something you know and the the wife and the kids and everybody they go to the store they buy everything they marinate everything they prepare everything and and all the man does is he just puts it on the fire you know and closes the lid takes it off and like Travis that was a good barbecue and you're like yeah yeah no <laughs> I, I set it on there and took it off after a few minutes you know. And so sometimes it's a matter of just keeping our, ego, keeping our ego intact. But we enjoy there being a need, so we have an opportunity to use whatever abilities we have. And God is a great and powerful God. Why does He save? Does He save because we deserve it? No, He actually saves because we don't deserve it. He actually saves because we were without hope. And we had no other alternative. And yet when we are rescued, who gets the glory? He does. He chose Israel not because they were 
great or strong. He chose them because they were small and weak. He, he says that several times in the Old Testament. He's like, I, I didn't choose you because you were good or because you were great. I chose you because you were small. So that when you were saved and delivered and rescued and protected, everyone would know it was him. And if we have any illusions that when God got us, he got someone or something good, let's remind ourselves that the reason that he saves is it isn't, it isn't to hold us up and say, wow, look, look who I got, but rather, can you believe who I got? Can you believe who I rescued? Can you believe who I took out of the, out of the, the, the bondage of sin? That makes him a great savior. He saves for his name's sake. If you look down in verses 44, he says, Nevertheless, he regarded their affliction when he heard their cry. And he remembered them for his covenant and repented according to the multitude of his mercies. He made them also to be pitied of all those that carried them captives. Save us, O Lord, our God. And gather us from among the heathen uh, to, to, uh, to captives. Save us, O Lord our God, and gather us from among the heathen to give thanks unto thy name and to triumph in thy praise. God saves them so that he would be honored and he would be glorified. When we were living in um, England, living in London in particular, Soccer or football, as they called it, was a very big deal. And everybody would want to know, who do you support? It meant, who do you, you know, who's your team? Um, and I, I don't know, I'm sure, there's, I'm sure there are interstate or inter-college rivalries up in this area. But that was a very dangerous question, who do you support? Because if, if you said you supported somebody that they didn't like, you know, they're like, oh. Uh, we'll go into another church, you know. So we, I took a couple of years, you know. I kind of, I was like, I got to find who the majority, who the majority support, and go with that. And I picked some obscure little local club that was terrible, you know. And everybody loved me, like, oh, you know. So, uh, but who do you support? It was incredible to me how loyal people would be to their their football club, you know. And some of the young guys would come into church, and maybe they supported like some terrible team like Liverpool or something like that, and they would come in to church, you know, and they have their head down. They'd be like embarrassed. And all the other guys like, oh, Joel. And he's like, I know, guys, I know, I know. And I'm like, why do you feel so bad? You weren't playing. He's like, I know, but we did terrible. We couldn't score a goal. I'm like, you're not on the team. But so loyal to their football club that when they lost, it was like they were ashamed to even come to church. You know, it was like they personally let their team down. But I thought, I think that's a really good example of how we should, we should be so loyal to the name of the Lord Jesus Christ that we want with everything that's within us for his name to be glorified. And even if it means suffering some some shame and ridicule for the name of Jesus, we identify with that. We want His name to be magnified and lifted up and honored. Because if He saves for His name, for His name's sake, then we should live for His name's sake. We should, we should go for His name's sake. We should, 
We should give for His name's sake. We should serve for His name's sake. We should even be prepared to die for His name's sake. I was uh, just, as I mentioned, just in West Africa, and we have a missionary, a couple missionary couples serving in Burkina Faso, which is uh, second, actually, on the terrorism kind of watch list, at least based on the, I think, the U.S. government's ranking. There's Afghanistan, there's Burkina Faso. Not a lot of people know much about Burkina Faso, but it's right on the southern border of the Sahara Desert. You really, uh, as a, as a as a non-African person, it's really not wise for them to leave the capital city. There's a, it's very obvious when you know a white person's out in the middle of rural Burkina Faso, and word will get around, and it's it you know uh, you could become a target of terrorist activity. But in the capital, they seem to have a pretty open door, fairly safe. But it is a difficult place to be a missionary. Um, hot. Great humidity, super dusty. Uh, my friends that are missionaries there, you know, if they want to even really just run a little bit of air conditioning and have it on at night so they're not, you know, really hot and they can sleep, they're probably spending like $1,000 a month on electricity. All the vehicles have to be imported. They're very expensive vehicles. They break down, very expensive to repair. Um... They live, really, they, they live like in a, in a fishbowl because it is obvious they're not from there. And everybody knows, if you go into a community and you want to know where they live, they say, where does, the, where does the white person live? And they're like, oh, they live over there. And so they're just, they're just under pressure. And there's a, lot of, um, there's a lot of disease. There's a whole lot of things that they face on a daily basis. And you think, why would anybody live there? Why would anybody put themselves through all that? They're doing it for his name's sake. And, and that's worth it. And so, you know, God maybe hasn't led you to West Africa, but God's led you here. And God has you serving here, and God has given you the time and resources and the life and the connections with people. And I would, I would ask you this morning, are you doing what you can for him for His name's sake. It may get hard, and it may get difficult, but if we can remember why. And maybe you're kind of sitting on the sidelines thinking, I'm not sure I'm going to get that involved or be as fanatical as some of these people in this church. But would you remember what He's done for you? That He has saved you and rescued you. And maybe you're here and you're, 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 you're just, you're, you're not sure. You, you, this, is, this is all new to you. And maybe you would, you would say this morning, Lord, I need your salving, saving. I need saved. I, I know that I've sinned against you, God. And I ask that you would save me. Let's just pray together uh, this, this morning. And if God has spoken to you in some way, I hope you respond to him. Lord, we love you. Lord, we're so grateful for who you are and Lord, for how you do so much for us. Lord, not because we're good, but because you're good. And because when you save us and work in our lives, you get the honor and glory. And I pray you help us to remember, Lord, for those that are busy and serving, to remember the the highest motive, Lord, is love for you, glory of your name. For those who may be not wanting to use their gifts as much as they should, and it's a lot of work, Lord, help them to get a hold of 
this reason. And for those who may be here that are not believers in you, Lord, I pray that they would see that you would save even them. We ask these things in Jesus' name.